Welcome to Get Messy, a Melbourne Emergency Student Society podcast covering all the crit care content med school wants you to know, and then some. All the information in this podcast is put together by medical students for medical students and should not be taken as medical advice. Hey team, and welcome back to Get Messy. Today is our second episode in our series covering shock. And if you haven't listened to our first episode on distributive shock, um, I would highly recommend it before you come and listen to the rest of this episode. Yeah, so this is episode four now, but a couple of episodes ago, we first brought up this idea of shockens as a mnemonic to help you remember the various types of shock. Last time we focused in particularly on distributive types of shock, where the cause of the shock is vasodilation or big leaky pipes. Yeah, so Liam, just to refresh everyone's memory, what does shockens stand for? So shockens stands for sepsis, hemorrhagic or hypovolemic, obstructive, cardiogenic, anaphylactic, and neurogenic. Yeah. So today we're going to be covering the other types of shock we didn't cover in the first podcast, and that is obstructive, hemorrhagic, hypovolemic, and cardiogenic. The O, the H, and the C. Yeah. So to start off with, we've got a case. So you're the intern working in the ED when you're asked to see Gemma a 38-year-old woman with a history of SLE in Fast Track who has a sore, swollen leg after recently returning from Europe. Mm. As she walks into the treatment bay, she seems unsteady on her feet and becomes short of breath with altered GCS. What do you think is going on here, Fee? Okay, so she's got a lot of risk factors and she's a lot of risk factors for a P or pulmonary embolus. And then also the fact that she's unsteady, she's short of breath with altered GCS. I'll be worried about obstructive shock from the PE. Hmm. Yeah, so what signs of shock does she have in this case? Okay, so she's got the ultra GCS because she's got reduced perfusion to her brain. Hmm. Um, that's basically that's it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so sometimes it's subtle, and I'm sure if you did a blood pressure on her, she'd be tanking out and that kind of thing. Yeah. But from the end of the bed, metaphorically speaking, the main sign of the shock is the ultra GCS. Yeah. So to start off with, let's talk about obstructive shock a little bit more generally. Sophie, when we talk about obstructive shock, what do we mean? Well, the name's in the title, so obstruction. So from the analogy from our previous episode of pipes and pumps, your heart being the pump and the pipes being the vessels, there is something that is blocking the flow of blood through the vessels of the heart. So in this case, she's got a block in her pulmonary vessels with her PE. Yeah, exactly. When I think of obstructive shock, I tend to think of three main kind of types of obstructive shock. Uh, yep. Do you know what they are? Um, so we have here a cardiac tamponade. So there's blood around the heart stopping the pump from pumping. We have a tension pneumothorax and we also have... Massive pulmonary embolus. A massive pulmonary embolus, yes. Yeah. So to run through those again, your three types are one, a blockage in the pipe itself, so the massive PE. Two is where the pump can't fill and that's cardiac tamponade. And three is also when the heart can't feel and that is tension pneumothorax so in this case it was a dvt you were right which managed to dislodge when she stood up in the waiting room and became a massive pulmonary embolus so to just delve into a little bit more of the background on this case in particular fee what kind of risk factors do you think that she had for a dvt what was making you think that that was the Mm. cause of her shock very very popular medical school question (laughs) on exams i learned this one So she got a few risk factors. So she has SLE, which increases your risk of clotting and creating blood clots. She also came back from a long flight. 
So she was not moving for a very long time. Also bear in mind that any long car rides, like interstate journeys also count. It's not just flights. It's the fact that a person is just immobile. Um, do you want to talk about the other risks of PE that's not included in the STEM, Liam? Yeah, so there's a lot of things. Pregnancy, obesity, cancer, they're all common things which can be a risk factor. And you often see DVTs actually on your women's rotation postpartum. Mm. The other big one that you'll see is surgery. So intra-abdominal surgery, if they've done it laparoscopically and filled the abdomen with gas, that can compress the vena cava and increase the risk of, mm. of DVT. And the other big ones, orthopedic surgeries, where the legs are mobile for a long period of time. Cool. So when we're talking about obstructive shock, there's one key clinical sign which separates obstructive shock from the other types. Fee, do you know what that is? It's a raised JVP. Yeah. So if you think about it, in most cases of shock, you've generally got low pressures throughout the body and you won't necessarily see a raised JVP. If you see very large distended neck vessels, not just the JVP, but kind of all the vessels in the yeah. neck, it's a sign that blood isn't getting from the venous system into the right heart. And so that's a massive warning sign that the reason that your patient has low blood pressure and is going through shock is probably because blood isn't getting through the heart because there's an obstruction. Yeah. Um, so that's a key kind of giveaway on the ward that a patient may be entering into obstructive shock. Have you seen the episode of House where House just sees like an elevated JVP and then suddenly gets a needle and just like stabs the patient heart because like, oh, the patient's in cardiac tamponade. <laughs> Have you seen that episode? I haven't, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, <laughs> it is very house. Like, I would highly recommend against any student doing that if they see a raised JVP. <laughs> but, I mean, the premise is there. Yeah, the if it helps you remember, we'll go with it. <laughs> so, for all of you uh, CritCast students out there, this is a bit of extra physiology. In all of these cases, you have right heart dysfunction. And what you would see in a lot of these cases, if it's tamponade or it's tension pneumothorax, if you do a transthoracic echocardiogram by the bedside, you'll see that there's collapse of the right ventricular wall during diastole. So tension pneumothorax and cardiac tamponade are actually diastolic failures. They're an inability of the heart to fill with blood during diastole, and that's why all the blood gets backed up. And the reason for that is that the right heart's super low pressure. Mm. So really, if the pressure starts climbing above, you know, five millimeters of mercury, you'll start to see collapse of the right heart. Oh, okay. In the case of a massive pulmonary embolus, you'll see kind of the opposite. You'll see the right heart's completely ballooned out. And instead of diastolic failure, it's actually systolic failure because the right heart can't pump against the increased pressure, um, the increased afterload that's now because there's a huge clot sitting in the outflow tract. Yeah. So just think of it, there's a massive clot in the pipe and then your right heart's struggling to push against, to push the blood past the clot. Yeah. Let's talk about exam findings. Cool. Yeah. So, as Liam mentioned before, you might see jugular distension or raised JVP that tells you that it's obstructive shock, but it might not exactly tell you what's causing it exactly. So you need to look for more specific signs and in clinical exam findings. So Liam, mm. in terms of listening to the chest or chest examination, what signs could help you figure out what it is? Yeah, so we've talked about the jugular distension, but you want to go deeper than that. So if you're suspicious that there's a tension pneumothorax, you'd be looking for things like a deviated trachea, mm. hyperresonance on percussion and absent breath sounds. Yep. If you've got a cardiac tamponade, 
You'd be looking for muffled heart sounds, you know, small caliber QRS complexes on an ECG. <laughs> wow, okay, fancy. You yeah. kind of go, yeah, all those kinds of things. That can actually be one of the hardest ones to diagnose as the tamponade because of its lack of clinical findings yeah. necessarily. And that's where something like point of care ultrasound yeah. is really, really useful. And then obviously, if you've got pulmonary embolus, you're looking for a sign of a DVT. So swollen legs and risk factors for that kind of thing. Yeah, particularly with the cardiac tamponade with the muffled heart sounds, it's really difficult when you have a patient in a recent trauma bay like there's a lot of noise going on and for most all heart sounds probably sound muffled at that point so getting an e-fast onto the chest is the best thing to do yeah absolutely i think that wraps up our obstructive shock yeah so that's obstructive the next thing then is our hypovolemic hemorrhagic shock so in this kind of scenario you kind of got two options the the trauma patient or the gastro bleed someone that's bleeding out everywhere Mm. Or you've got the patient that's just really, really dry. In both cases, the issues with tubes and that you don't have enough fluid flowing through the pipes. Mm-hmm. So, Fee, can you think of some examples where you might have hypovolemic shock? So, particularly in children, I learned this on peds. So, kids get dehydrated very quickly with gastro. So, if they're vomiting, they have diarrhea, they can get very, very dehydrated and become hypovolemic and risk hypovolemic shock. The other patient group that I think about would be the older patient with heart failure. They're on a lot of fruzamides, a lot of diuretics, and you've just pretty much dried them out that way. So this is definitely one that we can sometimes cause iatrogenically. And it's not an uncommon thing, unfortunately, that sometimes you might see a patient that gets dried out a little bit too far and they start to see a a lactate rise as well as a creatinine rise. So that can be a cause. And as Fee said as well, unwell kids can go into shock because of dehydration and hypovolemia as well. Yeah. So I think to remember with hypovolemic shock, there's usually a policy for it, but the basic principles is you give them resuscitative fluid and you also check their electrolytes, so there can be mm. electrolyte imbalance. If, you know, they've diarrheaed, they're vomiting, or you just drain them of their fluid. Yeah, absolutely. So, in particular, you want to look at their sodium and make sure you don't correct sodium changes too quickly. Yep. And there's a whole policy on that. We could do a whole podcast on that alone. And also, potassium is one of the ones that can become dysregulated, which can cause arrhythmias. Yeah, so, so that's really that. dangerous. <laughs> yeah. All right, then there's hemorrhagic shock. So... You've got a patient that's come in, they've had a motorbike crash or something like Mm -hmm. that. What are the signs to you that they are entering into hemorrhagic shock? Yeah, so with trauma patients, when they come in, they get a primary survey. And the whole point of that primary survey is to see whether or not they're in shock. And particularly hemorrhagic shock, as you're thinking about, because they've had a trauma. So what you would look for would be on their vitals. Are they tachycardic and are they hypotensive? Mm. Those are the two big ones as well. The other ones, obviously, is... Can you see the bleeding or can you find bleeding somewhere? So, Liam, where are the common places where a trauma patient would bleed? Yeah, so the way I remember this is think of four and on the floor. So there's four places in the body that people can bleed a large enough volume to start entering to hemorrhagic shock, (laughs) hypovolemic, hemovolemic, combine the two. So the four places are the chest, the abdomen, the pelvis, and the long bones. So in all of these cases, those compartments are large enough for people to be able to fill up with blood. People often think of the head. The head is not a a place where you can bleed enough to enter into hypovolemic shock, but a massive intracranial bleed can cause cardiac arrest. Yeah. But that's kind of separate. The other spot then is obviously on the floor. So when you're looking for bleeding, check the chest, check the abdomen, check the pelvis, check the long bones like the legs, Mm -hmm. and then obviously look on the floor. Is there just like (laughs) blood everywhere? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it can get missed in a trauma scenario when yeah. there's a lot going on. 
Yeah, so as part of the primary survey, you need to check for signs of bleeding under the circulation or the ABC of it. And the way they do it is usually an ED physician grabs a quantico ultrasound and they check the chest, they check the abdomen, they check the pelvis. Um, With long bones, I think they just check for fractures Mm. signs of pain and then get an x-ray like in the yeah tumor you can often uh clinically assess it so if, if there's a massive swelling in, in the upper limb that the like compartment syndrome yeah, yeah and you, you're looking basically for a femur fracture that's one of the main long bones which can fracture and cause hypovolemic shock yep. and that's often a little bit easier to clinical assess though you see them palpate the thighs looking yep. for that so let's say you know you found there was pelvic trauma you find a lot of fluid on the EFAS, it's EFAS positive in the pelvis. Mm. How do you fix that? Like, what yeah. do you do? So I guess this goes back to uh, doctors ABCD. You always want to be fixing as you go with these kinds of issues. So pelvic trauma, the easiest way, you know, they're going to need surgery probably yeah. uh, or endovascular repair. But what you can do in the trauma bay is put them in a pelvic binder and that kind of holds the bones together and decreases the risk that you're going to lacerate any of the vessels. Mm-hmm. You know, if you found that there's blood in the chest and you think that there's a hemothorax, you can put a chest drain in, drain the blood. Yep. And if you've got a massive fracture, uh, you want to try and reduce the fracture. It helps with pain management, but it also helps a lot with bleeding yeah, and hemostasis. So you can call orthopedics to come down and actually seen them just like pulling and yanking on a guy's leg. And I'm like, what's going on? It's like, oh, they're just going to reduce it right here, right now. Yeah. 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 It's one of the things that sometimes people think would come under a secondary survey because it's more limb preserving, Mm. but it can absolutely help prevent someone bleeding out. Yeah. And of course, if they're bleeding, you need to replace blood with blood. Mm. Do you know why? Explain why, Liam. Yeah. So the dilutional coagulopathy, one of the things that comes under the coagulopathy of trauma... So if there's a patient that's bleeding at litres of blood and you're simply replacing them with crystalloid, all you're going to be doing is diluting out the remaining blood cells and clotting factors in their bloodstream. So that results in what's called as a dilutional coagulopathy where they actually lose the ability to, to clot off and they start spiralling downhill. Yep. So if people are losing blood, you need to replace things with blood products. They're losing red cells, so you need to give them oxygen-carrying capacity. Crystalloid doesn't have that. You need to give them clotting uh, capacity. Again, mm. crystalloid doesn't give you that. The other points of the coagulopathy of trauma are things like temperature. So A little triangle. A little yeah, triangle, little yeah. Triangle, yeah. So we want to make sure that the patients stay warm. When we're doing the primary survey, we'll often undress the patient to look for signs of mm. trauma, but it's really important that we put warm blankets back onto them yep. because as patients cool, all of our coagulation factors are enzymes. They rely on temperature, and if your temperature drops too much, they lose the ability to clot. Yeah. I know the other part of the triad is acidosis. Mm. Do you want to talk about that really quickly? Yeah. So I guess in all of these cases, it depends on the type of injury as well, but if patient's in shock and you know they're not perfusing their organs very well, they get a lactic acidosis or metabolic acidosis, mm-hmm. or if they're not breathing, get a respiratory acidosis. That can also impair patients' coagulation. And it's one of the ones that it can kill people very quickly. Mm. It's quite hard to address. It requires a lot of interventions. It's a bit harder to manage as opposed to just putting a blanket on a patient. Yeah. 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 So I've seen in trauma calls. So if this trauma happened, Ambulance Victoria calls ED at her time, and the ED will then like gather all their staff to manage that trauma call. And one member of that staff is actually a person who would run down to the lab and get a massive exsanguination pack, mm-hmm. which would have your fresh frozen plasmas, your O-negative blood, and... And platelets. And platelets. And your platelets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So someone actually would go down and get that ready and bring it up to the trauma bay. 
Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of a little bit on trauma and a bit on hemorrhagic shock in general. Our third case is George. So George is an 80-year-old smoker with a past history of diabetes, hypertension, and ischemic heart disease. He had two stents eight years ago. He came to the clinic today after waking up more short of breath than usual. You were called to the waiting room because George seems confused and drowsy. And while your clinic manager calls an ambulance because you're in a GP clinic, (laughs) which I forgot to mention, you take some vitals and find out that his respirate is 20, his oxygen sats are 94, he's got a heart rate of about 100 beats per minute, a blood pressure of 85 on 50, his pulse is weak and thready but regular. Mm. So, Fee, kind of a broad differential here, but what do you think is going on? So... This guy, he's 80s, a smoker, diabetes, hypertension. So he's got a lot of risk factors for a acute myocardial infarction. And he's short of breath as well. It doesn't say that he has chest pain, but you can have a silent infarct, mm. particularly if you're a diabetic as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily rule out a MI. Mm. Low blood pressure, pulse is weak and thready. So I'm thinking there is an issue with the pump. So the heart itself isn't contracting properly and that's leading to a low output and that's why the pulse is weak and thready. Yeah, exactly. So this is a patient that's presenting with cardiogenic shock. So shock because we've got signs of end organ perfusion, he's confused and drowsy, and we've got signs that he has a low blood pressure, particularly when we know he has a history of hypertension. Yeah. Having a blood pressure on 85 on 50 is probably really low for him. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's a failure of the pump. So cardiogenic shock is when your heart itself is failing to deliver the outflow that your body needs and in the case of an infarct it's because of decreased contractility yep. but you know other failures can be things like arrhythmias rapid af is can be a cause uh, or svt or anything else where mm. there's a heart cause for the low cardiac output essentially yeah so mis myocarditis cardiomyopathies and other arrhythmias can all lead to cardiogenic shock yeah so get ecg yeah ecg <laughs> is ECG. critically important <laughs> And, you know, last uh, episode, Fee, we talked a lot about hot versus cold yes, shock. Yes, we did. Yeah. What do you think this patient's going to look like? Cold shock. So the patient, I think, will be cold because your heart isn't pumping out your warm, nice, warm blood to your body, to peripheries. So when you touch the patient's hands or their feet, you might feel like this doesn't feel as warm as I expect it to be. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And really the thing here to remember is that mean arterial pressure is equal to cardiac output times total peripheral resistance. And in this case, we've affected our cardiac output substantially, either because our heart rate's actually too high and our stroke volume has dropped, or because uh, there's just very little contractility, so the stroke volume, again, is next to nothing. So in this kind of scenario, it's typically an issue with your stroke volume. And as a result, you know, uh, piling on the fluids with these patients to try and resuscitate them can actually be detrimental because if they've got a failing heart, you give them lots of fluid, you can actually push their heart past the Frank Starling curve. Um, First year. (laughs) Everyone's favorite, everyone's favorite concept, the Frank Starling curve. You can overload their heart essentially and stretch those cardiomyocytes too far and then you lose even more contractility. So it's a difficult one to manage mm. and it really requires you to make the diagnosis to figure out what's going on yeah. before you necessarily start very invasive treatments. I think to your point to remember is a lot of our listeners are quite junior, we're very junior. Mm. And if something like this happens, you should always call for help. Yeah. Don't ever expect, you know, like beyond putting on the ECG and like, you know, checking their pulse and blood pressure if you feel like you're out of your depth and often it is because you are mm. call someone with a high with a higher pay grade because this is beyond your pay grade um, absolutely and get advice yeah and i think that goes really for if you ever suspect a patient's in shock 
Unless you are a senior registrar, you should really be calling for, for help. help. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of present these as a general overview to give you guys an approach of how to think through it. But as Fee said, and the whole podcast is by med students for med students. So this is not indicative of, you know, you're now qualified to treat shock. <laughs> <laughs> shock is life-threatening. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, this is definitely a tricky one to manage and your key management, I guess, to begin with would be getting that ECG. You know, a little fluid bolus isn't necessarily going to hurt things, but really you need some senior supports and you need to be considering things like if it's an arrhythmia, can you rate control or rhythm control them? If it's something like an MI, do they need, you know, thrombolysis or a mm. clot retrieval? So all those things well above your pay grade. Mm. Thanks, Liam. Cool. That was shock, everyone. Uh, thanks for bearing with us through two episodes and this is also a quick shout out before we finish we do currently have a survey going on we're trying to get some feedback on the podcast what you guys think of it so far uh, what you think we're doing well but even more importantly what you think we can work on and we'd also love your ideas for more episodes you'd like to hear yeah Um, so send them on through Uh, the link is in the podcast description and you can also uh, win a pair of figs if you uh get in in time it's a lot of money (laughs) (laughs) they're nice scrubs (laughs) would recommend thanks guys cool thanks everyone and tune in for the next episode i think that's probably all we have time for today thanks so much for tuning in and getting messy with us if you'd like a summary of today's podcast you can download the show notes from messunimel.org thanks again and until next time stay messy